And you'll want a handout, and it's a, a new handout for today. So the first two weeks of this series, we've had the same handout. We finished that last week. So now you've got four pages of new notes for today. And the guys have been trying to hand those out as you come in. Everybody have? Anybody need? Okay, you guys are doing excellent work. Thanks so much to the ushers for doing that. This is our series, as you see on the screen, Identity Crisis. Who does God say that I really am? And we have, in the first couple of weeks, we have said that if you are lost, page one of the first set of notes, if you don't have those and you want them, let the folks at the Welcome Center know, give them your email, we'll send them to you, okay? But on page one of those notes, we said if you are lost, and we used a fancy term, ontologically, Ontologically, because uh, ontology has to do with being, with existence. And so it has to do with, if you don't know who you are, then you're in the, the worst trouble. It's worse than being lost geographically. Uh, it's worse than being lost psychologically and not having a frame of reference for a period of time. But if you don't know, if you don't know who you are, then that affects everything you do. And so it is extremely important from a biblical perspective that we understand who the Bible says that we are. And in those opening notes, we said that in order to know who you are, that you, that you begin with God. You begin where the Bible does, in the beginning, God. And so our attachment, our relationship to God is what should define who we, who we are. And we've gone through in those opening notes what the Bible says about who we are as a creature, who we are as a fallen creature, and who we are as a redeemed child of God in Jesus. Now today we want to continue that with the notes that, that you have. But before I get into those, I want to talk a little bit about how social media can affect the way you view who you are. Now I have warned about the dangers of misuse of social media for a good while. I've written it on my blog. Pastor Larry and I have talked about it on our podcast. That's a good question. And in those blogs and in those sessions, we've tried to get the point across that as you are on social media, your identity is being tracked. That's how the advertisers make money. So a profile is being built on you. Now, I'm not saying that to scare. It's just the truth. <laughs> uh, that's the reason that you can go to free websites. Ain't nothing free. As we've pointed out in our podcast, that if it's free, then you're the product. In other words, they offer it for free so that they can know more about you. You're the item. And so developing that profile, what happens is then, having developed that profile, so here's a religious nut. Most of us in this room would qualify as religious nuts in the, in the eyes of, of most. Because you care about religious stuff. You care about Bible stuff, you know. And so they, that's part of your profile. All right, here's a religious nut. And then if you engage in some political reading or some political exchanges, then the nature of those political exchanges is going to profile you as well. You're conservative, you're liberal, you're a moderate, whatever. So all of that is built, and then here's the dangerous part. 
is that more of what it is that you're deemed to be like and therefore like is brought your way. But you can't just get more of the same thing. It's got to be more of the kind of stuff you're into, but a little bit of steroids each time. It has to be amped up. And so it gets more and more clickbaity to attract your attention, so you click. Oh, wow, and then you, you've gone to another website, and you click that. The next thing you know, you're going to all this stuff, and you've discovered the secrets of the universe that your whole family needs to know about. Your church family needs to know about. Heaven knows your pastor needs to know about. So let's shoot some of this to pastor so he can get straightened out. I, I bet he has no idea what's going on in the world, but I do because I'm on the Internet. And you get lots of people who are freaked out because of what they're reading on the Internet because they are going down the rabbit hole. So I warned you, I've warned you about the rabbit hole. Don't go down the rabbit hole. And when you go down the rabbit hole, if you decide to send something to me or if you decide to send something to others, then there should be loving pushback. I push back when people send stuff to me. I'm willing to risk offending. I try to be nice about it. But I say, why are you sending this to me? Where did you get this? How do you know this is true? If you don't know this is true, why are you forwarding it? Did you forward this to other people? If you forwarded it to other people, maybe get a hold of them and like retract this. Because you really do not have proof that Obama is a Muslim. I just made that, I'm just using that as an example, okay? But I've had people try to prove to me Obama is a Muslim. Now you can think Obama is a Muslim if you want, but you gotta have proof that he's a Muslim. And if you don't, then don't say it. Think it, but don't send it out. That's one danger. All right, I've beaten that horse. But here's another danger. And it's a danger to how social media, but media in general, presents an image of what we are told we should be. And then it makes it, us dissatisfied with who we are. I mean, that's another way you sell stuff. Uh, I, when I was in high school, the first job I had of any length of time was working for Murray's Auto Stores. You guys remember Murray's? They're now O'Reilly's. I worked there for five years, a couple years in high school, first few years of college. And I sold auto parts. Now, the interesting thing was I knew nothing about auto parts. Over five years, I learned, you know, what the parts were and where they went and some of the lingo and all of that. When I started, I knew nothing about it. But one of the things I learned about selling was one of the things that a good or a successful salesperson does is they create a need. Create the need. Somebody comes in, they think that what they need is some car wax. And we can show them the car wax aisle, but no, we don't want them to just walk out with car wax. We want them to get other stuff that they didn't know they needed when they came. Like, we've got particular kinds of cloths that will apply that car wax for you. 
And they're just right over here, and they're chemically treated, and they're going to help you. All right, so now you got wax, and now I have upsold the thing. I've done the add-ons. That's what we were told to do. Get these add-ons, and you get attaboys if you do add-ons. So you need, the, you need the cloth. And, you know, this was back in the days when all the cars rusted. Remember that? And so everybody who was waxing their car was also always worried about the rust spots on their car. So you can ask about the rust spots, and you say, you know, you got any rust spots? And then we got some stuff over here to help you with the, with the rust spots. And so that person goes out with a little basket full of stuff. You've created a need they didn't even know they had. Well, social media can do that. By presenting to you an image of what you're supposed to be, and now you've got a need that you didn't know you had. I'm going to talk in a minute about how that affects particularly young people. But let me say, parents, that I highly recommend to you that you be careful with your children and social media. One of the dangers with social media, in addition to this creating a need for you to be something that you didn't even know you were supposed to be, one of the dangers is that social media, ironically, makes you less social. I mean, the more you socialize with pixels, the less you're socializing with flesh and blood. And the less you socialize with flesh and blood, the less practiced you get at. And listen, a kid doesn't need an excuse. Most kids do not need an excuse to keep their head down, to not look someone in the eye, to let their parents treat them like they are a puppet so that you talk for the kid. And so this child is being raised now, not learning to look people in the eye and speak to them. And you add to all the other ways that automation keeps us from interacting with each other, right? And you go into, this has been going on for you, you don't, I mean, you used to have to interact with, at the gas station, a guy would come out and say, and you would say, fill her up. How's your day going? And then he's wiping your windows. Remember that? Some of you remember that? But now, you know, it's you interacting with, stick the, the card in, the thing talks to you. When you leave the grocery store, if you don't want to go through the, the checkout line with a cashier, you can go through the scanner thing, and then the scanner voice is talking to you. Place the item in the bagging area. I, I know. I have placed the item in the bagging area. I'm getting annoyed at you. I was at a Taco Bell several years ago, uh, several years ago, and I put my trash in the, the trash bin, and a voice came out, an electronic voice that said, thank you. <laughs> so you got all this impersonal junk going on. And yet, God made us to be social beings. It is not good that human beings be alone, the Lord said. Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning. He made us to be social beings. So the idea that you can do all your grocery shopping without ever having to interact, you don't even have to go and do the scanner thing. You can just do it at home. You can say, deliver it to me, right? And you don't have to go into the gas station. And if you happen to go into the gas station for something, and you go inside and there's somebody behind, they're behind six in inches of bulletproof glass. And all you get to do is slide something into a little slot. Right? This is the way it is. 
People have talked about the changes in our culture as seen in the way architecture of houses are built. When I was a kid growing up in Ecorse, many of you know I grew up there. I always add I live to tell about it. There I am. But all the houses were like right next to each other, but they all had one major feature to them. There was a big front porch. And my mother, my dad passed away when I was 11, but my mom would spend as much time as she possibly could on that front porch. And so did the neighbor across the street. And they talked to each other. Sometimes they got off the glider and they went down and they talked to each other close up. And we learned to talk to people. Front porches. Now what do we have? We got decks on the back. And there's nothing sinful about any of this, okay? I mean, I got a little patio thing on the back of my house too. But we not only have decks on the back, but we also got big privacy fences. Like the guy that lives next door to me, Dave. So I know Dave. I know his last name. I waved to Dave. Dave's wife passed away several years ago. Dave literally, he's retired, and Dave literally, he will come out in the morning in his car. His car comes out. The garage door goes up. Car comes out. Dave goes and gets something and then comes back in about 20 minutes, goes back in. Garage door goes back down. The only time I will see him again during the week is if I happen to be out and he's taking his trash out, happen to be out when he's getting his mail. I say, hey, Dave. That's it. And he's got his thing on the back of his house, and I got the back thing on the back of my house. And, you know, the idea is just stay away from me. You know, I know you got a front door. I just don't want to see you coming in or out of it, okay? So this is a cultural thing. It's been going on for a very long time, and now we have technology that can make it more intense. It's not new. It's just more intense. Peer pressure is nothing new. The Bible talks about peer pressure, just not in those words. If you care to jot down Proverbs 29 and verse 25, Proverbs 29, 25, Proverbs 29, 25, it says this, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. Now, you know, in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is spoken of a good bit, right? The very first chapter of Proverbs, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then later, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But chapter 29 and verse 25, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. Now, what is that? Well, the fear of the Lord is a reverence for the Lord such that you place yourself in proper relation to Him so that now that's the beginning of knowledge. You place yourself in reverent awe of God so that you receive from God His truth willingly. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Revering the Lord. So what's fear of man? Revering people. And that's exactly what peer pressure is. It's revering what other people think. And revering humanity, revering other people, rather than revering God, is going to prove to be a snare. And what we've got now then is nothing new, it's just a new delivery system, but an intense delivery system. So, 
The Wall Street Journal, just within the last month, has put out an eight-part investigative series called The Facebook Files. And they have gotten internal documents from Facebook and emails from Facebook about what Facebook is doing, not just with Facebook, but with stuff that Facebook owns, like Instagram. Facebook owns Instagram. So here's what the first installment of that eight-part series says. About a year ago, teenager Anastasia Blasova started seeing a therapist. She had developed an eating disorder and had a clear idea of what led to it, her time on Instagram. She joined the platform at 13 and eventually was spending three hours a day entranced by the seemingly perfect lives and bodies of the fitness influencers who posted on the app. When I went on Instagram, she says, all I saw were images of chiseled bodies, perfect abs, and women doing 100 burpees. Is that a thing? It is. Tells you where I am on the fitness scale, doesn't it? Okay. I was glad to see some other puzzled looks out there, too, though. A hundred burpees in ten minutes. She's now 18. She lives in Reston, Virginia. Around that time, researchers inside Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, were studying this kind of experience and asking whether it was part of a broader phenomenon. Their findings confirmed some serious problems. 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. The researchers said in a March 2020 slide presentation posted to Facebook's internal message board and reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Comparisons on Instagram can change how a young woman, how young women view and describe themselves. Now these are comments from Facebook themselves in their internal slide presentation. We make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls, said one slide from 2019, summarizing research about teen girls who experienced the issues. Teens blame Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression, said another slide. This reaction was unprompted and consistent across all groups. And yet, they know about this, this problem, but they don't want to do much about it. And the reason they don't want to do much about it, according to the Wall Street Journal, is this. Expanding its base of young users is vital to the company's more than $100 billion in annual revenue, and it doesn't want to jeopardize their engagement with the platform. More than 40% of Instagram's users are 22 years old and younger. And about 22 million teens log on to Instagram each day, compared with 5 million who log on to Facebook, where young users have been shrinking for a decade. On average, teens in the United States spend 50% more time on Instagram than they do on Facebook. But in public, Wall Street Journal says, Facebook has consistently played down the app's negative effects. Go figure. So, all that is, is a very sophisticated and intense delivery system for, in this case, young people to fear 
humanity to revere people. To say, they have the power to tell me what I'm supposed to be. And when I see what they are presenting, I need to conform to it. And if I can't conform to it, then my life is diminished. That's revering other people in an inordinate way. So parents, I urge you, be aware. But be aware for yourself too. Because some of you are not as old as me. Some of you are young. And you started out on Facebook, and now you're on Instagram. Now you're in the adult class. But you're still having trouble with that stuff. And as I mentioned at the beginning, there are other ways to have trouble with the rabbit hole that is the internet. So be careful. One last piece of advice to parents, and I'll move on. I'll get to the notes we passed out. Parents, move your children into situations where they have to interact with human beings. So I've used this example before, but I think one of the best ways to do this is when you go out to eat. When you go out to eat, don't order for your child. Let your child learn to talk. Let your child learn to look at someone in the eye and say, I will have or I would like. Right? But how many times do we do this? We treat the children in this infantile kind of way, as if they can't talk. And then, I mean, it's crazy. You've got a waitress here, you've got the kid here, you've got mom or dad in between, and they're like whispering in your ear, and then you, you have to pass it on to them. And I go, no, no, look, look at them. You say, Kim and I believe it's one of the best gifts we gave our girls, was teaching them to learn to interact with adults. To learn to do it, and then over time, lo and behold, they learn to enjoy it. So look at page eight, the notes that we handed out today. Then We want a biblical view of self-image, but that can be harmed by the purveyors of image that we have in spades today. So what's the biblical view? Americans are frequently reminded how important it is to value ourselves, self-esteem, is pushed in the popular media, school, even by the government. According to that great theologian, Whitney Houston, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. So, 1 John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. You all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. So if you want a definition of love, Seems like it would be a good place. This is how we know what love is, colon. Jesus Christ laid down his life for others. And we ought, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. So Whitney says learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. John says there is no greater love than this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. So you can believe Whitney or you can believe Jesus. Contrary to what many of us think, most people love themselves pretty well. Now I say that because, I just want you to think about this for a second. When people, if someone comes to you and they say, I just hate myself, 
And lots of people think that, and lots of people say that. Now, where have they gotten the idea that they don't measure up such that they hate themselves? From some source that has told them this is what they should be, they don't measure up, and so I'm down. I hate myself. But there's a sense in which if you really hated yourself, then it would be okay for you if you were a doormat. See, it's not okay for anybody, right? Nobody says, hey, I'm good with being a doormat. Why does nobody say I'm good with that? Because everybody has some, at least some regard for themselves, as they should. I'm not belittling that. I'm just saying that we, if we know who we are in, as a creature of God made in His image, then we ought to have an accurate view of the Imago Dei, the image of God. But when people say that, I hate myself, it's, it's saying that I've got these negative things that are going on in my life, having negative effects, and I don't like that because it should be better for me than that. And again, I'm not disputing that. I'm not disputing that it should be better for you than that. It's just that we shouldn't be so quick to accept the idea that people hate themselves. Because the Bible actually says something different. The Bible says we really like ourselves a lot. And we like ourselves so much that we get angry, we get despondent, we have negative effects when we're not able to achieve what it is we want. So most people actually, contrary to what many of us think, actually love themselves pretty well. Here's what old hymns used to say. You know, Isaac Watts and John Newton, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Notice it's a question mark. Did he really do this? Would he devote that sacred head? And here it is, for such a worm as I. For a long time now, that's been controversial. Hey, wait, wait what's this worm stuff? Or amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But although the Bible does teach that apart from Christ, our identity is one of estrangement from God, outside His family, because cast out of His presence due to our sin, some have sought to rehabilitate us without applying God's solution in Jesus. So here is Robert Schuller. You guys remember Robert Schuller? He's the late Robert Schuller. He was the guy who ran the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California. And he, did you ever see him preach? It, would be on, it had this high perch. It was this beautiful building called Crystal Cathedral because it was all made of glass. And it was just this beautiful thing. And then he had the robe on. And he would be up, as I say, in this high perch. And he would just kind of talk. And he would give these talks. Now, he had background in psychology. And so he would give these sort of self-improvement kinds of talks. He was Joel Osteen before Joel Osteen, you know. Just as an aside, the whole ministry, when he died, the whole thing collapsed. What was the Crystal Cathedral is now owned by like a, a Catholic monastery or something in Garden Grove. But here's what he said. Sin is any act, I should say, or thought, any act or thought, that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. The most serious sin is the one that causes me to say I'm unworthy. 
I may have no claim to divine sonship if you examine me at my worst. For once a person believes he's an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. Read that again. <laughs> once a person believes he's an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful that he can readily, really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. Now, many of you were here several weeks ago when Ben Edwards preached. And Ben was in Luke 18, and he was talking about the two men who went to the temple. Remember that? One a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the tax collector would not so much as lift his eyes toward heaven, and he said, just be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the guy who went away justified? That would seem to be exactly the opposite of what Robert Schuler said here. That guy thought he was an unworthy sinner. And as a result of thinking he was an unworthy sinner, guess what? He came away justified. That's actually how it works. But Schuler says, no, if you think if you're an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful you can honestly accept the saving grace that God offers in Jesus Christ. Even the secular media have noted the change in Christian writing and thought. The notion of self-esteem may put off anyone old enough to remember when Christian as an adjective was often followed by Christian humility. <laughs> but American churches, which once did not shrink from calling their congregants wretches, have moved toward a more congenial view of human nature. Chastising sinners is considered counterproductive. It makes them feel worse about themselves. Last week, as we were giving testimonies in our celebration dinner, Thank you all for the encouraging testimonies that you gave. And uh, he wouldn't mind me say this. He said that he did it publicly. But Vince, Vinny, stood up and said, you know, whenever I, when I come to church, I pretty much feel like crap. I mean, that was what he said. And I'm thinking to myself, well, it's not really my mission <laughs> to make you feel that way. But then he went on to say, the truth is, if you're going to tell the truth, this is who we are. And this is why we need Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that regularly, okay? If we fail to find our worth, bottom of that page, in Christ, we will search for it in other places. We have seen that Scripture does teach, in fact, that we are special in that we're made in the image of God on pages one and two of the notes, but it also teaches we're not so special. And emphasizing the first can lead to a high self-image, but emphasizing the second, a low self-image, and we don't seek to establish either one. You know what we want people to have is an accurate self-image. And that doesn't mean trying to give you a high self-image. It doesn't mean trying to give you a low self-image. It means trying to tell you who you are and who I am and who God says that we really are. So what does the Bible teach about how we should view ourselves? Well, one of the things we need to do is avoid, at all costs, the performance trap. Because one of the one of the practical consequences of the fear of man and getting your value and getting your identity and your worth from what other people say rather than what God says is this performance trap. We often base our self-worth on things like ability, intellect, popularity, attention, appreciation, and so on. We can group all of those into two broad categories, performance and approval. Today I'm going to talk about performance and next week we'll talk about approval. Now you see that list there, ability, whether that's athletic ability or, um, or academic ability, popularity. Th 
those of you that are old enough or those of you that have TV land and they show reruns, do they show reruns of uh, the Brady Bunch? All right. I remember as a kid watching Brady Bunch, and this is shaping what you think about yourself. And I remember watching the Brady Bunch, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I live, here's this kid living in Ecorse. My house is literally three feet away from the house next to me. Our house, I think, was probably 700 square feet. Now, we had a basement that was really like a cellar that we converted into some space to use. We had an attic that we converted into an upstairs. That was where my room was. Probably 700 square feet. My mom and dad's bedroom was on the first floor. You walked into our house. You walked into the house, and immediately to the right, there was a door that was their bedroom. This tiny little bedroom. So, I mean, that was just the space, right? Now I'm watching my Brady Bunch. And dad's an architect. And that house was the coolest house, wasn't it? Those stairs that, I mean, they were just so cool. And, you know, so Mr. Brady's an architect. And Mrs. Brady doesn't work outside the home. Not only doesn't work outside the home, she's got Alice, the maid. And I remember, you know, thinking to myself, wow, this is how the other half lives. This is the way it is on the other side of the tracks. I'm on the e-course side of the tracks. Now, it turns out, you know, that was baloney, and a lot of stuff that they put on TV is baloney, but you're a kid, you're just going, wow, there's people like this. We're supposed to be like that for me. Why aren't we like that? What's wrong with my family? So you, you're measuring who you are, your worth, your identity, your value, based upon something else. And it leads to performance or it leads to approval. Performance, I must meet certain conditions to feel good about myself. If I perform up to a certain level, then I must be okay. Approval, I must be approved by certain people to feel good about myself. If others recognize my value, then I'll feel okay. Both of those are inadequate. Thankfully, they find their solution in the gospel and the radical change that takes place when we come to Christ. This tendency to base our self-image on performance shows up in different forms in each of us, and it often brings harmful or negative effects along with it. So here are just some examples of the way this performance trap manifests itself. Perfectionism. The belief that perfection is the only acceptable outcome. One may have no tolerance for others who fail to meet such high standards. Such people tend to have unreasonably high expectations for themselves and for others. When a perfectionist fails, it has an inordinate negative effect. So perfectionism. Now, how would the gospel help you lose your perfectionism idea? Do you think? So how many perfect people have walked the earth? I mean, that ought to do the trick. So nothing you do and nothing I do is going to be perfect. So just get this side of heaven. So just get that straight now. One. Two. Who could set up standards of perfection for you? I mean, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus says that, knowing full well you can't. What's he doing? He's showing you 
where you are in order to point you to where you need to go, namely him. He's the only perfect one. So who can set up these standards of perfection other than God? God's perfect. We are supposed to perfectly image him. One day we will. We were made to do that as we saw in the first two lessons. But nobody does that now as sinful people. And so who can set these things up? And what we do is we let people, fallen, imperfect people, set up standards of perfection that we then try to meet. Now, some of you parents, I'm giving you a warning here. You may hate me after I say this. You may hate me more than you already do after I say this. Because you may be a person who really quacks the whip on your kids academically. And there certainly is a sense in which your kids need to be responsible, do their homework, all of that. But who developed the 4.0 grading system? I mean, where'd that come from? The Apostle Paul? Who said that C is average? And, and, we, and, and you can't just be average. That's why when Garrison Keillor had his show, um, what was it called? Lake Wobegon, Prairie Home Companion, radio show, live radio show. And every week he would tell stories about Lake Wobegon, Minnesota. And at the end he would say, that's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the kids are above average. That's funny because, of course, that's impossible, right? There would be no average if everybody was above average. What are we talking about? And yet he's making a point. Everybody thinks they have to be above average, and somebody else created the average. I'm not saying don't care about getting A's. Try to get A's. Have your kid try to get A's. But avoid perfectionism of any type, and especially on some man-made human standard that's going to hold your child's feet to the fire and can make life miserable for them if you're not careful. And put your ch children now aside, what about you? I mean, what does your house have to look like in order to have people over? The reason some of you cannot host a community group is because your house is not nice enough in your mind. It's just too messy or what, you know, whatever. Well, you know what you're doing when you do that? You're helping reinforce the false image that things have got to be perfect. Because only the people with the perfect house can host. Well, I'm, I'm breaking that curve, baby, because we're having one at our house. And our house isn't close to perfect. And my wife is a great housewife. And I actually like it that way. I like it for people to just come to our, like, just sort of regular house. And I like for people to come and just be able to relax at our just regular house. And see that it's okay to just be at a regular house. And everything's not perfect. And it's okay that everything's not perfect. And I'm not wigged out if somebody, you know, goes in and does a white glove test. And Kim's not wigged out more importantly about that. Perfectionism. 
can lead to despondency, low motivation, failing to meet the standards that we've created or adopted can lead to despair and giving up. Avoiding risk, rather than try something and risk failure, one decides to play it safe, attempting only those things that she knows is, are going to succeed. It can lead to anger, resentment, to blame shifting. When one's efforts do not result in success, he may become frustrated and angry because he cannot reach his goal, or he may blame others for his failure. Pride, when the performance trap doesn't always lead to these low things, it's a sometimes leads to a self-exalting arrogance when we actually reach the goals that we've set for ourselves. Look at me. What's the deal with the rest of you? All of this has to do then with how we think about ourselves and how we think about ourselves and where we get what we think about ourselves can lead us in a couple of directions, performance or approval. This is the performance. So what's the solution to that? Well, that's bottom of page nine and following. But I'm going to stop there. We will pick that up next week, okay? So that means bring uh, these notes back with you, if you remember. If not, we'll have some additional copies in case you forget, okay? Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being able to gather before you with your people, learn of you, and to worship you. And now, Lord, we want to go out into the world and take what we have learned and put it into to practice. And so in our first hour, Lord, we were reminded that you, you call people that are just ordinary people. And it's not because there's anything special about us, but because you're a special and great God and you can do things with non-special and non-great people. And so, Lord, help us to remember that, that we are now called to be your servants let us be excited about that. See that for the privilege that it is and engage in it this, this coming week. And Lord, I pray that in this session that we've been able to stimulate the thinking of our brothers and sisters so that we understand that our worth, our view of ourselves needs to come from the only reliable standard that there is in the universe, and that is you. Thank you for telling us who we are, for telling us who you are, for telling us what your solution is to the estrangement that exists between us be, because of sin. And Lord, as we're going to see under these doctrines that your word teaches, that we can have a confidence and a security in who we are when we find our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to think about that this week, to reject extraneous standards for perfection that so many of us try to adhere to. As a result of that, may we be more joyful. We may be more accurate in the way we view ourselves and others. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.